Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to the podcast. I am Jennifer White, and I am here with my amazing sister, Ellen Trackman. Thank Um, you. Yay. So um, even though she's amazing, we have to have competitive battles, right? (laughs) Uh, So we always talk to our guests before. It's because you're amazing, right? So of course. I mean, we're both amazing, but we're competitive. So (laughs) Uh, we were talking to our guest beforehand. And she said she was going to judge us during the interview as to who asked the best questions and keep a scorecard. So, um, Ellen, what was the result? Reveal the result. Who who won? Uh, She informed us that she won, (laughs) that she made the best, that she asked the best questions. questions. (laughs) (laughs) Did she even ask questions? I don't know. She she did say she was going to provide a scorecard card so we'll see if that's the case but i will go ahead and rate my questions low poorly i do have a problem of asking questions be like hey here's a big topic tell us about it <laughs> which is not maybe not the best question i mean and then you totally though you pinpointed in a lot of legal questions i thought you did great oh you did okay there you go so fun yes i do like to bring us back to legal so yes look forward so. to that too fun. yay how, how would you rate your own questions how do you feel about them uh, I feel like because I had so many biases I was confronting mm-hmm. in there that and things I didn't know about this beforehand that I actually felt really overwhelmed. So I'm not oh. sure I asked great questions. I don't because think I, I was known. I couldn't tell that you were overwhelmed. I wouldn't have known that. I mean, I was. I spent a lot of time processing, is what it really came down to. So I'm really excited for people to hear and listen and learn about traditional surgery. Welcome, Adrian Black, to the podcast. Adrian, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, um, first question is always my hardest of where to start. But when you meet someone and you start to tell them how you got into this area, how you became an expert in all things surrogacy, where do you start? Well, that's a big question. Honestly. <laughs> that was a big draw of air. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I have been involved in this community for over 20 years, uh, both on a personal and on a, a professional basis. So I'll share a little bit about my, my personal connection yeah. to surrogacy, um, yes, and please. then I'll share a little about my professional. Perfect. So I am a four-time surrogate for three families, uh, resulting in six babies. So I carried a singleton and twins for a family in New York. And then I carried twins for a family in Istanbul. And then I carried a singleton for my last surrogacy for a family in San Francisco. And um, the way that I was introduced to surrogacy was uh, my original profession was as a midwife. And I met a woman who was a surrogate. And when she said, this is what I'm doing and explained surrogacy to me, there was like a literal physical moment where a piece of my heart just kind of settled into place. And I knew that it was something I would have to do. Um, And it took a few years before my life was organized enough to be ready to be a surrogate, but um, that's how I came to surrogacy. And that's do amazing. you already had your own children at that time? 
Mm-hmm. I did. I was a single mama to uh, two sons. I still, I mean, I'm not single, but they're still in my life. <laughs> they're still around. <laughs> yeah. And um, so one of the big issues, when the big topic, which, you know, this uh, episode will be labeled as such, is that we really want to talk about traditional or genetic surrogacy versus gestational surrogacy. So one question is, um, tell us about the surrogacies you did. Were, uh, were they gestational or were they genetic surrogacies? They were all genetic. Uh, I'm sorry, all gestational. Okay. So, okay. and maybe we want to explain the difference. Do you want to? Do you want to kind of give the overview of the difference between the two types of surrogacies? Certainly. Um, with gestational surrogate, the surrogate is carrying an embryo created from genetic material that is not hers. And with traditional or genetic surrogacy, the embryo was created with her egg. Um, and typically it is through, you know, artificial insemination rather than the IVF process. Although sometimes it can be through IVF as well. So yours were all gestational surrogacies. Correct. So I was not the, M- or the egg donor right. Right. for those. Mm-hmm. Okay, so at what point did your personal connection and your work helping others in surrogacy kind of move to a professional level, and how did that look? I think, so I, in addition to the pregnancies and surrogacies that I actually carried, I had matched with several, with two families before that, and we had not been able to achieve pregnancies. And that was, you know, years and years ago before the technology is what it is now. And so um, through all of those experiences, um, I had had the same attorney representing me. And there was a point where I knew that I wanted my career to focus on surrogacy, but I didn't know exactly what that would look like. Did that mean I was working as a midwife for families going through surrogacy or what did that entirely look like? And, And my own matches had all been independent. And uh, the attorney who had represented me came to me and said, you know, I could really use a legal assistant. (laughs) Are you interested? (laughs) And for me, that was an opportunity to learn another facet of what I love and to really focus my professional career on surrogacy as opposed to, you know creating families through more traditional methods. Um, so I joined his family formation practice and it, it, about 90% of what we did was surrogacy and about 10% was adoption and had an opportunity through him to really learn what goes into the contracts, what works and what doesn't work, what the pitfalls of surrogacy are, also what makes a good agency and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um and so I was his legal assistant for five years, and then at a certain point, it was it was time for me to launch out and open my agency. So I like to tell clients that you know the legal agreement, talking through all the worst things that could happen, you die, she dies, all that's like the most fun part of surrogacy. Not everyone agrees with me. Your thoughts? <laughs> mm, fun. Um, no, but I do believe that the legal agreement is really a foundation of expectations. 
And so I don't think it's just like, uh, hey, let's get through this. It's really an opportunity to set everybody up for success in the process. But fun, no. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) So taking the next steps, tell us about that. Uh, For my agency? When I opened my agency. So that was October of 2011. And I struck out on my own and thought, okay, this is going to be really great. And um, it was really great. I had a small handful of clients the first few years, but it was also really hard. Mm -hmm. And learning the business of running an agency is quite different than, you know, working in the law office or having been a midwife or having my own experience. You know, the responsibilities of taking care of all of those people are really different. So it took me you know, quite a few years to kind of understand what it meant to be a good agency. Um, And since then, I've just been growing and expanding and serving families. Nice. And did you have a big 10-year celebration? No. I can't believe it. I didn't. And now you made her feel guilty about it. Stop. It's never too late. It's never too late. We can always celebrate. (laughs) it's actually a, a focus for for next year. Like my my key theme for next year is celebrate. So ah, we'll see. There we go. Okay, perfect. See, we've started the expectation for the party next year. So when you started your agency, were you just looking at gestational surrogacy matching, or were you doing genetic surrogacy matching from the beginning, or how did that? How did those different types factor in? Uh, well, can we talk about what we're actually going to call this for a moment? Please. Yeah. 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 Okay. I have a chip on my shoulder about oh, the phrase. Do it. Please. Genetic? Traditional? <laughs> yeah. Okay. yeah. I don't okay. like I don't like genetic. And I understand why people do. It is a more accurate descriptor than traditional. Um, but most of the United States does not use that phrase. Okay. Uh, so, you know, it is interchangeable, uh, but for most instances, I'm going to default to traditional over genetic. Absolutely comfortable sure. with that. And um, thank you for interrupting on that point and saying that. I will say I, I have struggled with language in so many areas where people decide to change it for whatever reason. And even the word agency, right? So we talk Mm-mm. about you um, owning and running an agency. And there, I don't know how, how many people are still pushing for that. But there was a time where there was this big push like, no, it's a a matching program or some other language because an agency is like this regulated thing for adoption mm-hmm. and this is not what it is. And I, I I feel like I probably have that same chip or like, let's just use the language that people understand. Like people know what we're talking, like, no, it's, it's an agency. People get it. Like people know that. So it's fine. And same thing, traditional, like if, if that's what people understand, like use the language people understand. Well, and as somebody who actively has both a traditional and a gestational program in my agency. It's just about (laughs) naming conventions. And so if I have a traditional surrogate, when I'm entering her into all of our documentation, it's always TS dash her name. Mm -hmm. But if we're using genetic, then Uh, I don't, there's no delineation for it. And so that's I mean, that's a selfish reason. Even but. more important reason. Yes. <laughs> I love it. So that's that's another part of why I feel the way I do about it. Nice. Okay. So back to the question, 
rephrasing it now as traditional surrogacy versus gestational surrogacy, how did they factor into your agency? Did they, did you start doing both or did it evolve in some manner? My initial introduction to surrogacy was gestational, and it wasn't until I was working in the law firm that I was ever even introduced to traditional, and we um, had facilitated several traditional surrogacies there. And so that's what my introduction was. But um, for me, I felt very, I still feel very strongly that traditional surrogacy is as valid a family building option as any other option out there. And so when I opened my agency, I deliberately chose to include traditional surrogacy as a family building option because I want to make sure that Um, that we're acknowledging the ways that families are created. So that's one reason. Another reason is it's happening. Whether people like it or not, whether they're comfortable with it or not, people are choosing traditional surrogacy to create their families and having agencies legitimize it, acknowledge it, and facilitate it makes it safer than if we refuse to have it as an active part of our programs. Makes sense. I think that's totally fair. Yeah. So do you want to talk about what, I mean, you referred to like some people not being as supportive about traditional surrogacy. Do you want to kind of address what those kind of arguments are that push against traditional surrogacy or that cause people to object to it versus gestational surrogacy? Yes. Uh, I, I think that there are different hats that people wear um, or that, you know, groups of people who have concerns about it. I think for intended parents and surrogates, it's much, it's a very personal response. Um, Some people are comfortable with the shared genetics. Some people aren't. Some people have um, worries that a surrogate will feel more connected to a child that she carried if she's genetically related um, or if it was her egg. And so for surrogates and intended parents, I think it's a very personal piece. For people who are not choosing surrogacy, but looking at it from the outside, um, I think that, you know, people who are concerned about baby selling, you know, it hits an even more personal mark for them because the surrogate is related. And so all of the fears they have for that child and that surrogate are compounded because of that genetic relationship. Um, For agencies, I think that the concern is that it is slightly more complicated. You have to be thoughtful about pieces of the puzzle that uh, you do not have to think about with gestational surrogacy. For example, you know, are we adequately supporting everybody's emotional needs? Are we protecting our surrogate medically? Um, Are we making sure that we're matching in states where it is legally appropriate to go through the process. So there are a bunch of details for an agency that make the the traditional surrogacy process more complicated than the gestational surrogacy process. From a clinic perspective, uh, they don't, just quite frankly, they don't make money off of inseminations. And so they don't like to do them. There's also that, you know, potential perceived added risk of the surrogate being the um, ovum donator as well. And so they tend to avoid it. And then 
what I've seen with attorneys is that they also see potential added risk for the intended parents primarily, because if the surrogate decides she would like to keep that child, then it is a less safe process for the intended parents. And I have to say, I I mean, I think even in gestational surrogacy, that's a fear of intended parents that that's going to happen. I mean, legitimately, and this is just based on your own personal experience, of course, but do you, have you ever seen that actually be a real legitimate concern from a gestation or from a traditional surrogate? Um, not personally, not within my agency and, and not when I was in the law firm either. Um, I do know that it has happened, but like gestational surrogacy, the, the types that this happens, it's not just because a surrogate changes her mind. It's because there are things going on that maybe she didn't know ahead of time or she wasn't comfortable with. I mean, it is, I'm I'm certain there's some point where a surrogate just said, oh no, I actually want to keep the baby. But the majority of the time- Obviously there is baby M happened, right? (laughs) Yeah, but I don't think that that's how that works for the most part. I mean, I think what happens is a surrogate gets into the process and the expectations that she went in with are not the reality she is experiencing. And so that causes a shift in thought process about what her needs are, what the potential needs are for that child and that sort of thing. So I don't think that, you know, when these instances happen, it's just, hey, I want to keep a baby. I think there's usually something else that triggered it. Right. No, that totally makes sense. There are of course, going to be a lot of differences between these processes. Do you, do you mind highlighting some of the, the big high level, obviously, besides the difference of creating an embryo in a lab versus potentially doing a, a transfer another way, but what other huge differences are there between those, those two? Well, there are so many differences and so many similarities. Um, I, I think, honestly, they're not that different for the surrogate and the intended parents on the, you know, we're going through a surrogacy, what our relationship is, what the expectations are. So I think there are a lot of similarities in how it feels as opposed to differences, more similarities than differences. The main differences come into just process. So the big one, of course, is, you know, how are we making this baby? So with gestational surrogacy, we're going through a very complicated process of identifying who's going to provide the genetic material. How are they going to get the genetic material making the embryo? It could be an egg donor or a sperm donor. Like there's so many people involved in that process. It is a much simpler process with traditional surrogacy because it's just fewer people involved. Um, and I'd like to, you know, I'm happy to go into detail kind of what that medical process looks like and what things we need to make sure, you know, are in place for it to be a safe process. Do you want to do that now? I would like to hear that. No, I would love to hear that. I mean, we may like snooze fest our, everybody who's listening, but I want to hear it. so. (laughs) So, you know, with, traditional surrogacy, especially if you're kind of hearing all of the stories out there, the the concept is that people just 
meet each other and then they show up and they, you know, do a turkey baster insemination at somebody's home and, you know, it's very informal. Uh, And certainly that happens. That's not what our process is um, through an agency. And I think as we're looking to legitimize this process for families, you know, I'd like to see other I'd like to see the turkey baster method go away, quite frankly. So sure. what what we like to see is that um, intended parents bank their sperm. And that can be at a sperm bank. It can be at a fertility clinic and can be, you know, with any kind of provider that has the ability to actually store the sperm for the intended parents. Um, and we want them, of course, to do the full FDA testing that any sperm donor would do. Uh, I was going to ask about the FDA, so thank you. (laughs) It it is not a requirement. There is no requirement anywhere about what has to be done. It is a requirement with my agency. And what we're looking for, of course, is to protect the surrogate's health. And so just like any sperm donor would, we want to make sure that the sperm donor is healthy. So we're going to ask them to bank sperm and have it quarantined for six months. I know that sounds like a long time, but the process of matching and doing all of the other pieces that are involved means that's going to go by very quickly. And it is the safest option that's available. With um, surrogates, what we're looking for is, you know, all of the same requirements that a gestational surrogate has, but also we do want her to do full genetic testing like any egg donor would as well. And then a comparison with the intended parent sperm, because, you know, we have the opportunity to be that detailed about it. And if we're going to do it with a gestational surrogacy, there's no reason not to do it with traditional surrogacy as well and give that family the best opportunity to have a healthy child, right? Right. So um, <clears throat> once all of that testing has been completed and we know that the sperm is quality sperm and that it's gone through a full quarantine and there are no communicable diseases that can be shared with the surrogate, then what we like to do is then have that sperm shipped. I, it's either going to be stored with a sperm bank or is going to be stored with a fertility clinic. So if we have a fertility clinic near the surrogate that is willing to do the inseminations, then the sperm will be shipped there. If it's if we don't have a fertility clinic that will do the inseminations, and most of the time we don't, then we'll look to um, ship that sperm at the time of ovulation to the surrogate's OBGYN or a midwife or whomever is going to do the facilitated inseminations. And I was, uh, sorry, you know what I was asking? I was curious at how often you see that. So it does sound like most fertility clinics aren't willing to do it. I mean, if you had to, to guess like percentage wise, how often are clinics willing to help or how often are OBs willing to help when it's a traditional surrogacy? Uh, I have three fertility clinics (laughs) that will do inseminations. Um, OBGYNs are generally very open to it. Hmm. They can't store the sperm. They, you know, they don't have the the cryopreservation. Right. But they are generally very willing to do the inseminations. Nice. Okay. Sorry. Continue. Thank you. (laughs) So the other piece of this is making sure that the inseminations are done in 
an environment that is safe for everybody involved, but also that clearly shows our intention throughout the process. And I think that this is an important part of traditional surrogacy. What we want to do is we want to be able to very clearly show that the intention was that the surrogate is getting pregnant for this family to carry a child for them with the intention of them raising that child once baby is born. And so one of the best ways to do that is to make sure that we are using professionals through each step of the process, that it's very clearly documented, and that everything is as above board as we possibly can. So with our agency, what that means is that they're always going to do the inseminations through a medical professional. But most people who are choosing traditional surrogacy, frankly, aren't using an agency. They're going independent. And so that's where you're going to see a variation on how this is being done, which may or may not include banking sperm. It may or may not include home inseminations. Um, It may or may not include testing. And so, you know, my hope is that this is an opportunity for us to talk about here's how you do this safely, as opposed to let's just get pregnant. (laughs) Is there additional, and I think mental health is important for gestational surrogacy as well, extraordinarily important, but are there additional mental health safeguards that you put in place with traditional surrogacy? Absolutely. Um, We, the screening process with our with all of our surrogates is very similar. But with traditional surrogates, we do have a few added pieces. Um, We do more consultations with the surrogate as an agency. We do more education with that surrogate as well. But in addition to that, we are having them meet with mental health care providers throughout the process. And some agencies will require monthly check-ins for everybody involved in their program. We don't do that with our gestational surrogates. It's optional for them. With our traditional surrogates, it is required that from the time they match all the way through six months postpartum, they're meeting with a mental health care provider just for a check-in. Okay. I'm curious, when you recruit or when you talk to surrogates about the different options, do people come in thinking, I want to be a traditional surrogate, I want to be a gestational surrogate, or is it more like I'm open to either? What does that look like? Well, all of the above. <laughs> yes, yeah, sure. Yeah. So uh, gestational surrogates, so you have the group of people who are very clear what they want. I will only be a gestational surrogate. I will only be a traditional surrogate. And then we have people in the middle who are open to what that looks like. Sometimes that means that they don't really, they haven't really explored it. So they're not certain. Um, and then sometimes they genuinely are open, you know, that could look like, well, I don't, you know, I want to start out as a gestational, but if they only have one embryo and they still want to try after, then I might consider carrying for them Mm -hmm. in a traditional pathway. So we really do see all of the above. And for those who start out thinking, I want to do traditional or only want traditional, what tends to be the reason or the preference for that? With surrogates, it's often, I don't want to do the medications. Hmm. Um, they want to avoid the that, injections that was and what the medicalized kind of thinking, protocol. Like, oh, I don't have to do injections. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like, 
Uh-huh, exactly. But also for for some of them, they and I think this is true with intended parents, there is a a specialness or a magic to giving of their own genetics where they're saying, I want to give this part of myself to you. And that connection, that genetic connection is important to me. Um, It is not, I want to parent your baby or I want to be, you know, mama to your baby, but it's very much, I feel like this is the thing that I can do. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's interesting and fascinating. Because also with egg donation, right? It's just Mm -hmm. looking at that combination of um, elements. Um, so I, I'll, I was trying to let Jen ask more questions because I can't stop myself from asking legal. <laughs> like, let's talk about legal, ah, which you touched on. I was like holding my, like holding my tongue. Like, She's biting no, her tongue I'm over there. It's fine. Go, go, I, let her off go. the leash. Go, 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 go. So aside from this concern about, um, a surrogate being able to change her mind to establish herself as a legal parent, I know that an issue that comes up legally for traditional surrogacy in some states is a question about compensation where many states have adoption laws and they are very clear that you cannot compensate a birth mother in an adoption scenario and there can be criminal penalties and there can be legal concerns that a traditional surrogacy might fall under a statute that was written about a birth mother and adoption situation, which provides criminal penalties and compensation. And since you worked for a law firm as well, do you, <laughs> did you see that concern come up or have you addressed that element as well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's one of those critical pieces. You can't just go into traditional surrogacy and decide you're going to do it. It's <laughs> that's not how that works. Um, it's much too complicated for you know, one of the reasons is exactly what you're talking about. And so when a surrogate comes into our program, you know, there's a lot of homework about whether this is going to be something that is safe for all parties involved. And legal is a big part of that. And so that means, you know, calling my friend, friendly attorney and saying, what do you think about this? Oh, you hate it? Okay, well, who doesn't hate it? Who can I talk to? You know, and and finding out whether it's going to be something that can be done safely or not. Yeah. And you probably, I mean, without practicing law in 50 states and knowing you're not an attorney or representing yourself for every state, you probably have a strong sense of what states are legally friendly towards traditional surrogacy and what aren't. And I, I'll put out there as an attorney in Colorado that we, you know, I can't say for every state, but that we are probably one of the most friendly states for traditional surrogacy since mm-hmm. we passed a law in 2021. So just last year that created a system that traditional and gestational surrogacy were treated identically in the eyes of the law, meaning a gestational surrogate cannot change her mind and keep the child just as a traditional surrogate could not keep the child of someone else for someone else. Mm -hmm. I find the West Coast in general, the Western half of the U.S. is pretty friendly. Um, There are places that aren't. The states that tend to 
you know, create parentage through a declaratory judgment or some other process as opposed to a pre-birth order process um, tend to have a little more leeway. Not always. I mean, it's always going to come back to each specific state, of course. Yeah, that's fair. You're not. So you're, it's you're complicated. Not, you're not going to name names. Got it. Okay. <laughs> we'll just put Colorado out there as good, and we won't say anything else about anyone else. So. Well, I mean, I will say like uh, I'm thinking about, you know, where we're actively seeing it, like California, um, Oregon, Washington, for sure. Um, And then I'd have to go back through and look. But, you know, I would say I think there are about 12 states that I'm really comfortable working in and then a few states if all of the, the puzzle pieces fit together. That's pretty good. 12 is... Um... I was saying, that's not bad at all. Um, so talk about your experience with the differences between domestic and international with traditional surrogacy. So there's always kind of two categories in my head. There's my experience, which quite frankly isn't what most people are experiencing with traditional surrogacy. And then there's okay. kind of what <laughs> the majority of people are doing. Um So for my agency, most of our traditional families are international. And I think that that's in part because a lot of the international families that find us are also same sex, and they very strongly want the genetic relationship. They feel very connected to the idea that their child will have an opportunity to know who their mother is. Is And that's genuinely the term they use. Uh, And so for them, it's very much a choice. We want to know who this person is and we want our child to know who she is and have a connection to her. And for them, it's um, that kind of convenience of why would I go through an egg donor cycle (laughs) when I can do this with the surrogate? Mm -hmm. So there's definitely a different thought process and perspective on that relationship than what I see from families within the States. Um, Within the States, what I see is that intended parents have more fear about the connection to the surrogate and what that means for their family. And I think that that's cultural for sure. I think it's a product of, you know, the history that we have, baby M, for example. So I definitely see that there is a difference with our international families versus the domestic families. There's also a cost component to this as well. I was going to ask that next. Uh, Never never fun to talk money, but I think it is a big factor, right? Absolutely. You know, if we look at the average cost of embryo creation with an egg donor and genetic testing being, you know, 35 to 55,000, what we're seeing for traditional surrogacy is that the cost to get the surrogate pregnant is about 10 to 15,000. And so the, the cost difference between embryo creation for traditional versus gestational is significant. So I know that there's, oh, I said go, Ellen. Okay. I I just want to dig into that number a little bit more where you said about 15,000 to get a traditional surrogate pregnant, but do you have kind of an idea of the comparison number of say a same sex couple who needs to use an egg donor where clearly there could be a large variety of what that 
might be, but what's the average you see to contrast uh, with the traditional surrogate? Uh, I see with an egg donor, whether it's a same-sex or a, a heterosexual family, but in general, I see embryo creation being between you know 35 and 55 for gestational. So I know that you know IUI is kind of is is very much maligned just because it's not as successful. What is the difference in success rates you see too, though? With mm. since traditional is, I mean, obviously it's the equivalent of going to RE for IUI essentially. Mm-hmm. Well, assuming that we have you know good numbers for everybody, so the surrogate's testing looks good, her hormone levels are good, her ovarian reserve is good, right? So assuming that we're starting at a good place to begin with, um, we expect that a surrogate will get pregnant within three to six cycles. Okay. And with so traditional surrogacy. Cost, yeah. So your estimate of cost kind of assumes that you're going to have to go through three to six ish cycles as well and pay an OB or whoever is going to do that. Correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. And is the compensation for a traditional surrogate the same as the gestational surrogate or is there a variation? I don't see much variation uh, as far as, you know, the base compensations that surrogates are requesting. That seems to be pretty much the same. There, I mean, a compensation benefits package is going to be different because there's no transfer fee, for example. So there's some adjustments in there that are a little different, but surprisingly, they're not that different overall. So with no transfer fee, and sorry, I'm going to actually like put a fine line on this. Is there a fee that would be equivalent because they have to go through an IUI? So obviously they have to go through a medical appointment, at least potentially up to six different medical appointments. Is there a delineation difference in that? And you can tell me if I'm being obnoxious and drilling way too far into this. Uh, No, no, it's not obnoxious at all. And let me like, let me just pull up really quick what the traditional surrogacy compensation packages are. And I can actually, I'll tell you what the differences are. Yeah. Um, because it's interesting, without knowing, I, I could see it going either way, where a traditional surrogate might ask for higher compensation because she's also, in essence, an egg the donor, egg donor and right. egg donors are often compensated, or the other direction where she doesn't have to go through injections and there's less of that piece of it. Right. I mean, there's less. no not going to be a medication start fee, right, because they're not on medications, but they are going through potentially significantly more appointments, although... You could argue, and I again, not, without knowing everything about that, that there's a difference in are there fewer pinpricks and things like that in a traditional surrogate model. So I'm I'm curious. Well, so we don't see that surrogates want to roll in. <clears throat> excuse me, that they want to roll in kind of an egg donor fee. You know, we don't. Our surrogates choose their own base compensations, and they just mm-hmm. don't do that. Um, as far as the other expenses, if they take medications, and some do, then yes, absolutely, there's a medication start fee, just like there would okay. be with gestational surrogacy. Um, and I would say that in general, most of the time, they won't start on a medication. But let's say they've done a couple of inseminations and it hasn't been successful. At that point, then you know, whoever the managing physician is, they may recommend some kind of augmentation to, to support the process. Okay. Um, and then there is a cycling fee 
that is paid to the surrogate for each month that she is actively cycling. And that is meant to cover, you know, the costs for monitoring. There are at-home monitoring supplies like ovulation sticks and that kind of thing, Um, vitamins and supplements, the travel to and from her local clinic, you know, the things that, that go into the process. Some of the big differences are that in most cases, she will be doing the monitoring and the actual insemination close to her. Right. And I think that's really important, right? Because that's one of the challenges with traditional surrogacy is how do we actually get the sperm to the surrogate? Right. Uh, so, you know, that's where that banking the sperm comes in and and is very handy. It also does impact, though, the success rates because once you freeze sperm, you're definitely the, – the success rate is lower than with a fresh – insemination. And so that's why we're seeing more of that three to six month range to achieve a pregnancy than, you know, one or two months. Okay. I mean, I think you answered my question in the cycling fee is going to be similar to an embryo transfer fee. So they are still being Mm -hmm. compensated for the amount of time that they're spending doing that. So that's good. Yeah. Is Is your agency fee the same regardless of the type of surrogacy? It is right now. <laughs> I've gone back and forth on that. The, the reality is traditional surrogacy is a lot more work and there's more risk involved in it as well. Um, right now it is the same because I feel very strongly about supporting it as an option for families out there and would very much like them to choose agencies um, instead of trying to figure it out all on their own. And we'll put it out there that your agency is an outlier that not, I I mean, not all, or I would say not, definitely not a majority of agencies support traditional surrogacy. Do you have a sense of how many others are, are like your agency? To my knowledge, there's only one other agency that actually lists this as an option on their website. There is another agency, two other agencies that do offer it as a program, but it's more of a, you know, you're going to bring your own surrogate or something like that. Um, And then there are a number of agencies that will facilitate a traditional surrogacy in a situation where, you know, the the intended parents have run out of embryos and everybody would like to proceed. Interesting. Okay. So they would have already essentially been matched at that point. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't happen very often either. You know, it's not like this is happening all the time. I would say that, you know, 95% or more, maybe 97% of surrogacies out there, traditional surrogacies are happening through independent matches. And even within your agency, what percentage is traditional versus non-traditional surrogacy? It's such a small percentage. Um, Five to 10%. Is the traditional. Correct. That, I mean, that's good for you since uh, it clearly takes more work. And <laughs> you charge the same. But, um, well, I think it's you – know, the reality is that a lot of people who are choosing traditional surrogacy are doing so because they simply can't afford the cost of gestational surrogacy. And so um, a lot of families who are choosing that just – they aren't looking to add an agency in because it's an additional expense. Um 
it's not something that a lot of people talk about either. So it's not like they're necessarily getting the same kind of referrals to agencies or hearing about people using an agency. Uh, So I think the reasons people don't go through an agency are varied, but a lot of it really is about cost because it's a substantial savings in cost to go through a traditional surrogacy process over a gestational surrogacy process. So if a somebody is looking into doing this, and I mean, I know you said that there aren't many, but if somebody on either side, both gestational carrier, sorry, carrier, because they're not gestational carrier, they would be a surrogate at that point, or a parent was looking for an agency to go through, what would be your advice for what they should be looking for and how they should search for an agency? I, I know I feel like I'm, I'm yelling that into a vacuum because you're one of only a few that does it, but <laughs> what would be your advice in that and the, what they should be asking and looking for in somebody assisting them through this process? I think experience. You know, how many traditional surrogates has an agency facilitated? I think they need to hear that an agency is actually putting steps in place to protect the child and the surrogate. So what that specifically means is, is the sperm being quarantined? Is testing being done to make sure that there are no communicable diseases? Um, Is genetic testing also being done to make sure that all of the genetic contributors are compatible. And then I think also what you need to hear is that the agency is making sure that this is done in a way that's not going to potentially negatively impact parentage later on, meaning are they making sure that this is being done in a safe legal environment, that the appropriate medical people are involved, that mental health care providers are involved? Also, do they just love traditional surrogacy? <laughs> you know, you don't you don't want to choose a way to grow your family and then go to professionals to support you if it's not something that they believe in with their whole heart. No, that's very true. That is very true. I, I'm like I'm so overwhelmed by <laughs> all of this that I'm just like it's it's a, such an amazing way. For, for some people who are, are looking into this to grow their family. And I think it's something that's just not talked about very much. And I appreciate that you, that you're willing to, to come out here, throw it out here for us. And I, what resources besides yourself, because I know you're an amazing resource, I mean, would you send people to look at for if, if they were looking into this and kind of wanted to do the equivalent of a Dr. Google search, where, where would you send people? I don't, I don't even know how to answer that. Um, <laughs> Your own website? I, I was like, I could send them to you, but. <laughs> um, you know, it, there's so much misinformation out there and there are so many stories of people doing it in ways that aren't safe, quite frankly, that anywhere that I can think to send people, they're going to get the full range. And um you know, maybe that's not so bad. Maybe getting the full range isn't so bad with the caveat that it's not enough to just hear other people's stories. You really do need to consult with mental health care providers and medical professionals and legal professionals. And, you know, of course you need to have escrow in place and like it, it, 
you don't just meet a surrogate and then decide you're going to have a baby and then do inseminations. Right. Like it's, (laughs) I know it's crazy. I'm shocked by that. (laughs) I know, but you do really need to treat this with as much um, importance as a gestational surrogacy would be treated. And, And frankly, I think a little bit more gravity even. Yeah. So do you find the timeline on traditional surrogacy? And actually you kind of thought me, threw me at something like, is the timeline longer or shorter in traditional versus genetic? Well, okay. I know you're like, so (laughs) is each one is its own unique snowflake, but, (laughs) um, I, it it depends. I don't, I think matching time, I'm going to walk you through kind of the different scenarios. Um, I think matching time can be a little bit longer because there just aren't as many traditional surrogates out there. And, you know, like any scenario, Sometimes you find people who have been rejected through the mainstream methods in the matching pool, right? So, you know, you can have stops and starts there. So there's, there's the matching time can be longer. Certainly I do require with my agency that six month quarantine. Um, So if that's not done at an early time period, then that can add to that. Or if they're coming in already with a surrogate that they've identified, um, I don't think that the medical piece, I mean, sometimes it happens on the first insemination and sometimes it doesn't. So I don't think that that part necessarily is longer. Okay. You are an amazing human being for her. I mean, for facilitating this for so many people. I mean, I I know you personally and I just think you're an amazing human being anyway, but also for facilitating this for so many people. Before we totally wrap up, I do want to ask a question unrelated to traditional surrogacy. Um, We would love to hear your fashion advice when it comes to clothing (laughs) that may be supportive uh, assisted reproduction or reproduction in general. Do you, anything you can share on that front? I mean, are you talking about pineapple socks here or are you talking about or vulva dresses that you've been <laughs> known to wear? Do you, do you have some favorite fashion pieces that you like to, to wear? Yeah, I feel like we need visual aids here. Uh, people uh, uh, are going to be absolutely oh, we confounded. We can I may have a photo of me with you in one of said dresses. Describe <laughs> uh, describe um, the dresses. Uh, I I am a big fan of vulva themed dresses, and that that really could look like just about anything. Um, in some cases, it looks like a beautiful, very kind of elegant cocktail dress with flowing um, lips. <laughs> I'm not sure what. I was, I was waiting for your word choice right there. Was, I'm like, yeah, should I be delicate or should I just be yeah. be real? Um, my most recent vulva dress creation was a fringe laden um, sheath dress that had about 500 shrinky dink vulvas on all of the fringe. (laughs) So as I walked down the hall, I had a lovely um, vulva jingle. Um, Yeah, I'm I'm a fan of vulva fashion. 
Yes, I think that we have to share uh, a few photos of your your clothing and your fashion sense with everybody because it is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) That's certainly fun. I once bought a pair of shoes that has uteruses all over them and I felt like I was like on cutting edge and then I met you and I was like, oh, oh, I'm like, I'm nothing. (laughs) Oh, no, I saw you wearing those shoes and then I went and bought myself a pair. (laughs) Oh, good. Oh, good. I'm glad that I'm a little bit of a leader in something. (laughs) Mm -hmm. For certain. I mean, separate from your agency, do you take orders? Do you support others' desire for vulva fashion? You're no. going into a new career. Have you considered uh, fashion that designing? A, a newer alternative fashion uh, business? N- n- no, absolutely not. Um, however, there is literally nothing in this world that would make me as happy as walking down the street and seeing just a sea of people dressed in some kind of reproductive garb. I don't care if it's a penis. I don't care if it's sperm. I don't care if it's a vulva. Just please. Go out there and wear reproductive themed clothing. Mm. We, goals. We have goals yes. now. I hope one day to see, <laughs> see that dream fulfilled for you. Awesome. <laughs> um, I do. I, I realize um, when we talked about my personal surrogacy experience, I didn't specify. Um, I only carried gestational surrogacies. I have not ever carried a traditional surrogacy myself. We we asked that. You said that. You did? <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yep. Really Sorry, right. it was it was 50 it. minutes yeah. ago. It's fine. No, it's okay. it was 50 so minutes it. ago. So okay. <laughs> no, you are so amazing, Adrian. Uh, we are absolutely thankful that you were willing to come on and share your story with us. And if anybody is um, curious and wants to know more, I'm going to throw out a little pitch for you. Adrian is a heart to hearts to hand heart to hand surrogacy. Wow, how many times do I have to say that? Um, <laughs> and I I know she has such a wealth of knowledge and would be absolutely happy to to talk to anybody. Um, do you have any final thoughts for us, Adrian, before we say goodbye? No. Check She's like, wow, that's the hard question at the end. Yeah. <laughs> I would say after you've listened to this, go to our website, check out the pictures that um, Adrian's definitely going to share with us to post, right? Absolutely. And I, I might have a video for you too. <gasps> Even better. Ooh, all right. Enticing. So everybody listen to this and then go, go look at the video. So thank you, Adrian. We appreciate you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much. This has been really fun. Um, Thank you so much to Adrienne Black for joining us and talking about her story and traditional surrogacy and clearly something that we we haven't spent a lot of time addressing. So really interesting to hear kind of how it works and the details. Um, I was going to point out that we do have an interview from early on from one of our very first episodes of a traditional surrogate. So actually a woman who was both a traditional surrogate and then later a gestational surrogate. So I highly, highly recommend checking out the interview with Susie White, who is an incredible person. and No relation to me. (laughs) And one of my favorite things about her story that always, always makes me laugh is that she tells how the, one of the inspirations for her to become a surrogate was watching, um, I forget one of the people about the baby M case, this whole disaster case where a traditional surrogate wanted to keep the baby and ran away with the baby and Scott, you know, um, this whole like nightmare. But she said watching about that case actually inspired her 
to become a surrogate herself, which always makes me laugh at this like nightmare scenario. Where you're like, I want to do that. Right. But, Worst but case to, makes not it. Not to thing. run away with the baby, but to help someone else. Anyway. Exactly. So definitely check did. out the Susie White episode. Such a good episode. Yes. And, you know, while you're just trolling around on the internet, definitely go to our Facebook group and join there. Um, I'm going to remind people, if you do not answer the questions, I will not let you in. And also, if you answer the questions by saying, I want to make a baby, uh, I also will not let you in. So just saying, because there's a little bit of a creepy thing going on with people trying to get into our Facebook group. So um, not letting it happen. But um, we should be posting the pictures that we referenced there. I definitely have a picture of me with Adrian with one of said dresses. Um, and I know she'll share a ton more because she, she is absolutely a delight and fun. Um, huge thank you, of course, to our team, to Tyler, to Melissa, to Amanda, to everyone who works so hard to make us sound great and to bring us here to you every week. And of course, Thank you to you for being with us. We appreciate you.